Emerging markets' best-kept secret, the cost of pension freedoms and investing in Europe at a crossroads. Welcome to the Personal Finance Podcast with me, Kate Bealey. And today I'm joined in the studio by Darius McDermott, Managing Director at Chelsea Financial Services. And later on, we're going to be joined in the studio by James Milne, Co-Manager of Crux European Special Situations and Crux European Fund. But first, forget Facebook, Amazon and Netflix. The tech giants of tomorrow and today are based in emerging markets and they're changing the face of emerging market investing The MSCI Emerging Market Index is soaring in the year to date and the tech stocks within it have shot up even higher. Tech now makes up almost one third of the MSCI Emerging Market Index. Darius, emerging markets have been doing really well this year, haven't they? I mean, to what extent do you think it's technology stocks that are responsible for that rise? I mean, as you rightly say, technology is a bigger sector now. And I mean, the likes of Tencent is up 72% year to date. Alibaba, 79% year to date. And... Even Taiwan Semiconductor are very boring and dull, 27% year-to-date. So, um, you know, some of those big tech stocks really have been driving the market. And, and you mentioned a couple of them there. Who? What are these stocks? Who are they? Well, I mean, they, they have uh, US equivalents, Amazon, WhatsApp, these types of things. And so it, it's all based around the consumer, very similar Facebook type of um, tech stocks. And as you rightly say, they're, they're doing every bit as well as the US versions over in in the emerging markets. I mean, what, what do you think is driving up? That's I mean, those are massive um, share price increases. Yeah, I, I mean, tech broadly has been doing very well, both in the states and and in emerging markets. And you know, they have a huge amount of of users. Uh, there's a vast population in in Asia and emerging markets, and hence you know the the traffic that that they get to their their sites and their apps and their, their shopping um, it is driving the, this this share price movement and and it's very much a growth story which has returned to markets in 2017. Mm, I mean we think of emerging market investing as things like commodities and we think natural resources things like that are these types of stocks which now dominate the index are they more resilient to the kind of factors which used to shake emerging markets so commodity cycles and things? I I mean yes and no I mean some of these stocks as we've already evidenced have become quite have gone up a lot. So I think valuation always sits at the key of any of these type of arguments, whether it's commodities or, or tech. Um, as you rightly say, commodities used to be a bigger part of of that index. And I think this is a really you know, key point as to why you don't want to have passive management because you're buying last year's winners and last decade's winners, not, not the, the winners of the future. And um, the consumer really broadly is the main story in Asian emerging markets. It's been growing for a decade and you know there are emerging middle class that have the ability to consume and spend and you know I see no reason that that won't continue to be the main driver in in that region. And so, so in some senses this is more or buying something like Alibaba is more a domestic um, play than maybe buying a natural resources or commodities stock, would you say? I, I think you're absolutely correct, yeah, okay. it certainly is. Um, but when we have talked about valuations, and these stocks are trading on pretty high valuations now, aren't they? Yeah, they're, they're on high PEs. I mean, they've they've had a great run. I'd say the tech sector globally has been, maybe not you know, in the US, it's been leading as well. So you know, we've been broadly in a growth phase. There was certainly more value in the market, value style in markets in 2016, but... The majority of the last five, seven years have been very much growth-oriented markets. So what does that mean then for where you want to be invested in emerging markets? Would you opt for an emerging market manager with an overweight to these stocks or, or the opposite? 
I mean, look, there there are funds that that cater to to, to all. And there will be some funds that that have decent positions. Um, the likes of Schroeder Asian Alpha Plus has um, some of those stocks I mentioned in its top top ten. Um, but you can buy things um, where the managers are more value oriented. Things like um, Somerset Emerging Market Dividend has very little in China at all, and hence barely any exposure to those sort of names. And what kind of things would a value style manager own more of? Well, value and growth, I think is as exasperated as in emerging markets as any region in the, in the world. Um, value is as cheap as, as it has been. Um, commodities, um, financials uh, tend to be the sort of st- stocks that you know value would point to um, at the moment. Yeah, but and value has underperformed growth for some time now, hasn't it, in emerging markets? Which Yeah, I mean, 2016, I think globally not. value had a, a better time, but... For, for for quite a while but actually if we, we were having this conversation five six years ago you would actually think you would say asia and emerging markets is the one area where value wins 65 70 percent of the time it just hasn't been the case for the majority of the last seven eight years mm, i mean so for an emerging market investor now what do you think are the are the biggest risks and, and which areas are the most vulnerable well look, emerging markets are broadly a more volatile asset class than developed market equities that i don't think has changed um you have lots of different politics, you have lots of different currencies, and they don't all move in the same way at the same time. Dollar strength is always an issue. If the dollar strengthens, capital tends to return to the US. And that means money comes out of emerging markets, which it isn't good. And and then and we just have politics. I mean, here we are with the um, North Korea, US dominating markets i think the last certainly this week and you know that that's bad for markets globally that's not an em phenomenon that's just unsettling for markets which broadly across the globe sit at peak valuations okay well let's maybe talk about uh talk about some politics because we're moving to europe and this month marks five years since the european central bank president mario draghi pledged to do whatever it took to rescue the euro from the throes of crisis now since then we've had record low interest rates we've had cheap money pumped into the system via qe and low inflation and investors have recently been touting european equities as some of the best value around but with easy money and low rates potentially about to end, how should you be investing? So I'm joined now by James Milne. So, James, you manage our top 100 fund, uh, European Special Situations. How do you define special situations in this context? So um, for us, actually, special situations are not necessarily the, the very risky turnaround stories, but they tend to be things where for some reason investors have got a bit bored with that particular stock and it's derated a bit because they had a bad quarter or two um or perhaps you know we have a little stock called kendrian which we bought last year and essentially the last 10 years you know the ceo has been building the company up with m&a but at the expense of margin then a new ceo turns up invests several million euros into the into the shares so he clearly means business and wants to get the margin from seven till ten so you know ten percent so that's sort of what we would consider a special situation but obviously it's not the what a lot of people think of as you know the the type of stock that lie the deep value or or not exactly yes okay so i mean how would you define your approach to investing and, and what is it that you're looking for in stocks then so um we often mention that we 
look for the same things as private equity and, and why is that and that's because obviously private equity people obviously well a lot of them seem very clever and, and good at identifying good businesses and obviously the banks that lend to the private equity and it's enormous amounts of leverage need to make sure it's quite a sensible business so they actually get their money back so if you look at what they're looking for it's things like and the same with us is obviously the cash generation so it's the fact that you know they don't spend much on capital expenditure you know so plants and equipment um, they don't have much tied up in stock or in um, networking capital in other words is low they you know they therefore hopefully will pay a good dividend um and it means they can deleverage you know all this uh, high private equity debt you know when they're owned by private equity quite quickly so we're looking for same the same sort of characteristics and it tends to actually come up with stocks which have high returns on capital and also in 2009 which is sort of the critical year to see how how it fared uh, we look for stocks you know where the um, sales didn't fall very much. So we have a whole load of things, for example, in, in sort of technical and property services. Uh, and there, actually, often the organic growth was very slightly positive or you know, very slightly negative. But I mean, it's not the sort of minus 20% that you might see on a lot of other companies. So you can see why banks think, well, this is great, because um, I can lend to the private equity in a, in a bad time you know, the EBITDA might fall, you know, only 10% in a bad year. Mm, so these are kind of businesses that either have moats around them, do they, or, or they're kind of vital parts of a supply chain, is it things like that? That's right. So we tend to avoid B2C companies because um, uh, fashion is always quite a difficult one and to B2C predict. B2C being a business selling to the consumer. That's right, yeah. So it tends to be business to business where there's a technical sale. So you come along and say, look at my clever product, um, you know, this particular ingredient which you need, um, it'll really add value, it'll mean your customers, you know, will like your product more and they'll pay more for it um, but on the other hand it's a fraction of your overall costs so you know the Givadon which makes the ingredient to make your prawn cocktail uh, crisps taste of prawn cocktail so it's quite a 1980s obviously a flavour but anyway <laughs> um, you know that's very critical uh, to the to the crisp uh, flavour but actually it costs you know less than 1% of the overall cost so when there's pricing pressure you know for the customer the last person they're going to phone up is Givadon you know because they might save 0.1% whereas it's easier to get the potato price or something else down. Okay. Um, so these sound like essentially kind of quality businesses, high return on cash generation. But in fact, it has been quite a tough climate, hasn't it, um, in the past or in the year to date, really, for uh, quality focused managers. Smaller companies' funds have been doing really well. Um, cyclical stocks, value stocks um, have been out on top. Um, and over the short and medium term, both your European funds have underperformed the FTSE world, um, Europe X UK. Mm-hmm. How would you explain that? Do you think it's those causes? Actually, the um, the special situations, I mean, just at the end of July is more or less, I and mean, it was very slightly above actually the index, fair enough. Um, and the reason for that actually, but, but you're right, obviously Q4 last year was, we underperformed. And that's obviously because, you know, when things start flying, then, you know, a lot of our sort of solid companies, you know, don't don't fly as much. And, and this is very much the normal way that the the market um so the fund reacts in in these market situations because we'd much rather you know we've got a big focus on capital preservation so when you know the index goes down 20 percent we hope to be down you know much less but obviously when things are going up let's say 30 percent then we may, might be up you know perhaps a little bit under that but on the other hand from the purposes of an investor including myself i'm very happy that my fund is up 28 percent even if the market's up you know, a tiny bit more. So that's sort of the way we always tend to look at it. And generally, it might happen for a quarter or two where you have lots of banks and cyclicals which bounce very strongly. But over the long term, if you're investing in companies which make a return on capital of 25%, which the fund is on average, and the index, which is only 13, you know, then at about the same valuation, if you let them run for 10 years, 
you can see those sort of jaws opening up and, and the fund hopefully outperforming. But in the kind of medium term, looking forward, if we do get an interest rate rise um, or many interest rate rises across Europe, uh, if we do get a tapering of QE, there is a sense in there that these cheaper cyclical shares will kind of beat growth shares over the kind of short to medium term. So could investors expect you to lag for a little while? Well, as, as always, that sort of slightly overused question about, you know, arriving and, um, you know, what actually happens when it does arrive is that at the moment, obviously, a lot of things are bounced in expectation of interest rates going up. So often you find when they do go up, then, you know, if the interest rate rate isn't big enough or whatever, then often you end up with underperformance in some of those banks. I mean, actually, we've obviously seen this before in you know obviously 2000 early 2000s um and actually what tends to happen obviously is that hopefully that should also mean there's a bit of inflation and if there's inflation then you know our companies have pricing power so they should pass that on so you should get actually more organic growth um and so hopefully a bit of margin expansion so um it's always it's not always that easy just to say well interest rates go up therefore you know banks will outperform um companies which are doing very sensible growth and acquisitions um and being bid for and things. So actually, there's a lot of things going on in the fund which should add to good performance. Okay, and I guess you mentioned there um, the inflation, margin expansion. How else will your stocks continue to generate the kind of organic growth they need to, you know, to keep boosting share prices? So, I mean, there's quite a range in our uh, portfolio. So we have actually things which are in structural areas, which are in structural growth. So, um, you know, it might be, for example, companies today which had numbers which are quite good, um, which is Stabilis, which makes basically gas struts on the back of your car. So when you open the boot, you know, the thing which keeps the boot open, they make those. It's very easy to to make those, strangely. I mean, not quite you or I could make them one this afternoon. But if you want to make 8 million for Toyota with no failures, that's very difficult. So basically everyone's gone bust doing that over the years. Um, but then actually, so that's a nice sort of business. And how many people are there doing that now? Uh, well, basically just them, really, um, in, in Germany and some other places. Um, but the, the nice growth is obviously everybody wants to see the boot that opens at the press of a button. So what's happening now is that obviously it starts with Porsche and then Audi and then Mercedes, and you can see it trickling down. And then eventually you know, you'll have the sort of Renaults and, and Peugeots also doing it um, and putting installing them. And that's great business for Stabilis because they have high market share in that. And, you know, the price compared to the gas strut is much higher. So that's one example where there's structural growth. But there's quite a few if you go through our portfolio, you know, let's say it's difficult to assess, but let's say 25% might be sort of structural growth where they, these sort of trends. Um, and then another quite a large chunk, perhaps about 30 to 40% is in bolt-on acquisitions. So there might be some gentle organic growth in the business. It might be bottling or it might be um, support services of some sort. But actually the, the big growth is mopping up a very fragmented market and you're buying often off families so you're only buying on let's say you know um seven or eight times eve bit which is obviously far below what the companies are listed at so you've got a bit of financial engineering but then there's also synergies because obviously there's a small head office that you might close as well and then you can expand their product offering into your own as well so you get some nice sort of cross cross synergies there so actually there's quite a lot of growth that happens through this bolton acquisitions which is generally you know not hugely risky if if the management are sort of sensible about how they um go about it what's an example of one of those then in your so for example actually um spie um spie which is a french company uh, which that that listed about two years ago not not in great timing because actually they have a bit of oil and gas exposure which obviously people knew about and wasn't doing very well it also had quite an exposure to france which particularly then you know obviously was slightly in the doldrums sort of from sentiment and also um actually in in, in the economy and then actually it's done 
one very large, well, quite large acquisition um, in Germany. So then it means it sort of de-Frenchifies, you know, the, the exposure to France. And uh, yeah, that was a good price, and that was in December. And so suddenly people think, actually, here is a good bolt-on acquisition. It's very accretive. The shares start moving. And then suddenly once the shares start moving, you know, how it is everyone else piles in. And so then suddenly you get a bit more of a, um, a re-rating. Because we were buying it, you know, about a year and a half ago on sort of 12 times PE, you know, with a sort of 4%, three, well, 3 to 3, 4% um, dividend yield. So these are great businesses, but it often, you know, takes a while for investors to wake up to the fact that it's actually a good business. Yeah, interesting. We often hear about Europe that there's very high concentration of family-owned businesses. Um, is that something that appeals to you, that you look for? Yes. I mean, we like family ownership. You always have to be a bit careful with family ownership because obviously if it becomes generation five, um, perhaps they're actually not running a business and they're on their nice yacht somewhere. So um, you have to be make sure that even if there is a family controller, um, that actually the CEO that's actually doing, you know, rolling his sleeves up and doing the work is actually incentivized in the right way and is doing the right things. And there isn't a clash between, you know, the family, you know, the sort of lazy family on the yacht and the hardworking, you know, CEO or, you know, the fact that the management might be a bit too involved in the day-to-day running. So the, the family, which might be, um, you know, quite annoying for the CEO. So that's why we always have to meet the management is so key because you need to be able to look at the guy and sort of say, you know, how is this working and how are you what have you been told informally by the family do they say never cut the dividend or do they say you know you can't buy this company or you can't go in this region so you know it's, it's very important to make sure that all the boxes as it were are ticked but, even though it's what's the benefit of that family ownership is it the long-term vision towards a company yes obviously key. you don't want it to be too long term because otherwise it can be a bit painful if they're always sitting on you know huge amounts of cash and not doing anything with a sort of lazy balance sheet for 15 years but it, but often it's just the way that businesses that you can actually pass on and inherit often tend to just be quite you know good businesses that tend not to go bust so you know banks generally not <laughs> family owned because obviously they need a lot of capital and they tend to go bust every 10 years or 20 years whatever so um they tend not to be family owned and it just tends to be a sort of nice small niche where the family has just worked out you know how to make a business model work particularly well okay um now you recently launched a crux european fund didn't you and in fact the performance of the two funds has been quite similar and and they look quite fairly similar in composition so what is the difference between the two the difference really is that the um the one we've launched more recently is, um, although it's smaller in size, it's actually more scalable. So it has a bit less of the special sits as a quite a long tail of quite small companies. Because we often see these quite interesting companies. We can only probably buy a certain amount of, of the company. And that might only be, let's say, 70 bips in the special sits. But um, if, if we get sort of large inflows, obviously it's very optimistic about that, you know, then it becomes quite difficult, you know, constantly, you know, buying these companies uh, when they're very small. So it's, it's sort of easier to have a new vehicle, you know, where you can um, uh, get a bit more flow in and it can be a bit more scalable. So essentially exactly the same process, a large overlap of stocks, um, but just essentially without the sort of long tail at the, at the end, which a special sits has. Okay. Um, and just generally, when investors are buying European stocks, are these and the ones that you own, do they tend to be domestically focused and driven or are you really looking for ones that are selling into international markets? Um, we definitely prefer either pan-European or global stocks. Um, and actually, you know, I'm never hugely excited about the European economy but I am very excited about the fund, you know, and how is that? And that's obviously because they have these niches. And uh, often, if you can dominate a niche in a particular area, you can often do it globally. So, um, you know, they either by acquisition or organically, they'll grow into other areas. So most of our companies tend to be quite 
global based or if not very much pan european based uh, having said that we do have some which are just pan nordic for example um but we've only got for example one stock in italy which is actually italian for example but otherwise you know we tend to um avoid you know a, a domestic play Okay, and so what have you been adding to recently? Or, or? Um, well, just a few things actually. Where you know stocks which we've known for quite a while, um, which have just come back because they had a bad Q1 or a bad Q2, and then you know how it is with investors. If uh, or the markets, you know, if you have two bad quarters and sales going down, then it must be in structural decline, you know, and therefore it's a sell. So you can often get quite strong D rating sometimes. Um, so we've been buying you know a few things in in one actually in the UK actually called Equinity, which um, um, then did an acquisition actually just after we'd bought some. Um, that was also another classic example where uh, it's an IPO quite recently. And then I think possibly the banks didn't necessarily sell it, well, you know, the, the broker didn't necessarily sell it to the right type of um, investors at the beginning. Um, and perhaps there was quite a bit of churn. And so the, you know, the shares hadn't really done very much for a bit. Um, so we've been buying a bit of that as well. And that's very much just a market awakening to the fact that it's actually a very good business. Um, it's actually the very boring Lloyd's share register business you know which is just incredibly sticky and should actually come on quite a high multiple than it's on but we for example we've been buying that and some other sort of uh, mid caps which have come back a bit okay and uh, you did uh, reference banks earlier and um your co-manager richard pease has said before that banks are mainly off limits um apart from those in scandinavia yes is that still how you feel more or less actually yes um i mean the, the scandinavian ones obviously have had a great track record um I think famously the Swedish government actually made money out of the banking crisis because they took in a guarantee fee, which obviously was never really actually utilised. Um, but they never had to embarrass the government and ask for you know a big bailout. Obviously that happened in the 90s, which is why they sort of learned their lesson. Um, but essentially they're just run by people who focus on you know sort of cash returns um, and not just you know growth for the sake of for the sake of growth. And obviously they pay it out quite strongly as a, a nice dividend. Okay, um, now Darius, I'm going to turn to you. Um, so this month we saw Czech Republic raise its interest rate for the first time since 2008. Mr Draghi has hinted the end could be nigh for QE. Um, do you think we could be on the brink of a regime shift across Europe? Well, I mean, certainly growth is better in Europe than it has been for a long time. There is now some inflation. We don't have to worry about deflation today. And we, I think, will see the end of QE at some stage and, and whether they'll t start to actually take it back I, I think it's doubtful any time soon but I think we and this isn't a European phenomenon I think it's a global phenomenon we need to wake up to the fact that interest rates are not going back to the old highs of well, UK 5-6% I mean globally there is too much debt still it's just not now with the banks it's now with the consumer and with governments QE lots of it somebody has to still pay that's still a, a debt and I just think you know, whilst recovery is happening in Europe, I don't think the European consumer could take substantial rate rises. And we again have to remind ourselves that we are at these historic lows. I mean, multiple hundred decade lows of rates across the globe. So, yes, we could have some rate rises off of the floor, but I don't see there being any reason economically today why we would see substantial rate rises. So what does that mean for the kind of funds that you want to invest in? in well, your... I think James mentioned, I mean, there certainly was a cyclical rally, particularly strong in the second half of 2016. And that was across the world, wasn't it? That was across the world. That was a, a sort of a global reflation, Trump trade, Trump trade yeah. type of rally. But it was happening before um, Donald Trump got elected. And 
I think globally we've seen a bit of a reversal to growth this year, um, maybe slightly less muted in Europe. But yeah, I, I think there's a place for both sort of value and growth funds. As I say, growth funds, quality funds have had a, a, a good a good run. But I think you know James has given a number of examples where they're buying good quality businesses that will have some growth, but they're not necessarily overpaying for it. And some of the examples he's given are sort of 10, 12 type PE multiples aren't market expensive let alone you know super growth stocks which you know some of them have have had a very good run and and you would broadly say do look a bit expensive so I mean, what kind of things are you looking for when you're looking at a european equity fund what kind of questions are you asking the managers well, that you speak to? Uh, for, for us the key thing is do they do what they say they're going to do and you know there are some managers that are high growth there are some managers that, that like quality companies and there are some managers that look stocks that are bombed out and you, you just want to make sure that actually they're doing what they say they're doing. So when you do own them, if you're clever enough to call the the, the, the climate right, that it's a value rally, that actually you pick a value manager that that, that will deliver in that. Um, I think for most retail investors, you want to pick, you know, we very much look for managers that actually outperform in down markets as well as my managers that do very well. Because over you know, 10, 15, 20 years, which I think most people investment horizon, losing less um, when markets go, go south, and obviously we're 10 years since the sort of the f- start of the financial crisis. Um, lots of investors still remember losing 40% in European equities. And if you can lose, if a fund goes down 25 or 30, you, you're actually a, a good bit ahead. So uh, yeah. I think it's very difficult to call whether it's a value or a growth cycle. Growth has had a a very good long run. I would be minded to have some value managers in in a portfolio today, because broadly that there is that they are cheaper. And I think European equities, whilst not cheap at a market level, certainly are cheap relative to other developed markets, particularly the States, which is mm. on very high ratings versus its own long-term history. Yeah, would Europe be one of your kind of favoured places to invest at the moment? A- absolutely. I mean, I think equities broadly look expensive, but Europe has lagged. There is now some earnings growth in Europe, which from a company level can certainly support continued positive returns on Europe. And certainly Europe probably it would be our number one certainly developed market to, to go for, for for the next 12, 24 months. But. Great. Well, thank you. Uh, thanks, James. And thanks, Darius. And now, finally, we move on to the cost of pension freedoms. Now, since pension freedoms were launched in April 2015, pensioners have been able to access their pots much more flexibly, and they're using DIY investment platforms to do that. But freedom comes at a cost. Platforms charge a wide array of fees to use these new options, which include taking lump sums from your pension and going into income drawdown. So now I'm joined in the studio by personal finance writer Emma Adjman. Now, Emma, you've been looking at this, haven't you, and the range of fees. So what kind of fees can you expect to pay for a SIP generally? And um, how are those charged? Well, as you say, Kate, there's a real range um, from transfer fees if you want to transfer your pension pot into or out of a platform to trading fees to buy and sell investments. But pretty much all platforms will charge some kind of administration fee. Of all the confusing thing is that these can be called different things, custodies, account management platforms. It's basically just a fee for holding a SIP with a platform. Um, generally, these kinds of fees tend to be either charged on a percentage basis or a fixed fee basis with um, percentage 
platforms considered to be better for those with smaller pots and fixed fee platforms that are better for people with larger pots. Okay, now you've looked specifically, haven't you, at, at going into income drawdown yeah. um, and what platforms charge for that. So do platforms charge specifically to go into income drawdown? Well, before the pension freedoms were launched in April 2015, quite a few platforms did um, used to charge to, just to set up um, to income drawdown. But actually, these days, that's not the case so much. But there are a few exceptions. For example, Barclays stockbrokers charges a one-off fee of £75 to set up drawdown. Okay, and but they do charge other kind of fees to be an income drawdown, annual fees, or, or how, how yes, does that work? Yes, definitely. Um, it, again, this area is so in, interesting because there are different ways that different platforms charge. Um, basically, they can be kind of grouped into platforms that will use an, an all-in fee for people who want to use income drawdown. For example, Fidelity charges a maximum of 0.35% a year on the value of your pension. And you can pretty much use your SIP however you like to take down um, regular income, ad hoc income, lump sum. So, so no extra charges on top of the annual fee. Exactly. Um, but other platforms will use a more menu-based model um, where you're charged on the basis of the benefits you take. For example, AJ Bell, you invest, charges £100 a year to use income drawdown. And that's on top of paying for your SIP? That is. Okay. Uh, so what do you think, after doing all this research, what would you say to people who want to go into drawdown? How should people kind of evaluate their DIY platforms when they're looking at this? Yeah, well, I mean, interesting enough, the FCA is looking at um, retirement you know, outcomes. And one of the things they've realised is that people just don't tend to shop around enough. So the real big takeaway is just actually think about um, how you plan to use your your SIP. Are you going to be somebody who wants a regular income or perhaps are you looking for sort of lump sums or ad hoc income? And actually do the homework, look around um, at the various different platforms on offer. Okay, well, thanks. Good advice there. And I think that's all we've got time for this week. So uh, thank you to James, Darius and Emma and join us again next week at the same time.